What's going on, everybody? Welcome to the Three Educated Brothers podcast, the podcast about all things education through the perspectives of three black men in the field. My name is Edmund. My name is Mark. My name is Pat. And we are here live, and we have a special guest today. Um, today, we're, we want to discuss and touch in around mental health in the times of a crisis. So we thought it was super important to bring back our friends and our colleague, um, Marielle Bouquet, Dr. Marielle Bouquet. Um, so let me introduce her real quick, and then we'll jump in. So Dr. Marielle Bouquet is an Afro-Latina. She's a PhD in counseling psychology from Columbia University. Her work focuses on the advancement of culturally responsive clinical care and healing wounds of intergenerational trauma. She's our dope colleague, and she was rocking with us in our first season and one of our first episodes around mental health. So we thought it was only important and perfect and pertinent to bring her back for kind of a part two um, around this crisis. So let's all welcome Mario Bouquet. What's up, sis? Hey, yeah, yeah, yeah. what's up, dog? It's so good to be with y'all. I mean, always, but, you know, in this context, too, just parlaying and having a conversation that's really timely and important for our community. So happy to be here. Yeah. So, you know, we were, you know, trying to figure out what, what was on our hearts and minds, um, especially in this time, and just trying to figure out, you know, what's, how can we best support educators? And I think right now we're like in, I don't know about y'all, but I'm like in week four of like this quarantine. And the, the, a lot of the conversation now is it's still around COVID and, you know, and, and obviously the loss of life um, and making sure that, you know, people who are, are not feeling well get better. Mm-hmm. But we think about the, the, the mental health impacts of this crisis, um, the mental health impacts on on parents, on families, mm-hmm. on teachers, on students. And I think we kind of want to go there today. We want to figure out, we want to understand the context from a, from a professional field. And we also definitely want to talk about what are some resources, some practices, some strategies that we could use just to, to heal, um, to maintain mental health, to maintain a positive mental health, um, and just be whole you know, as a community. Yeah. So we thought it was important to have Marielle on here just to kind of share with us some things and let's let's kind of delve into this conversation. All right. I mean, there's a lot that we, you know, can talk about. I think we could be here for a long time, you know, just covering just the basics of the things that um, are pertinent to mental health and what's happening, you know, in a pandemic crisis that for many of us, for especially, you know, perhaps our generation of like millennials and, and the generations that have come after us, like it's a very new thing and very displacing. And then for the people that, you know, um, have been in situations that are similar to this uh, in times past is like kind of like a re-traumatization. So on all accounts, like there's something that, you know, can really throw us off and it has been throwing us off and not to catastrophize, but I think we're only seeing um, the tip of the iceberg on this one. So I'm really glad that we're joining in conversation this early on in the process, you know, to be able to get ahead of um, what we need to do in order to maintain our mental wellness right now while we're in the thick of it. And then also, you know, what we need to do as a community moving forward when we finally get out of this like pandemic cloud um, because we're, we're going to have a lot of work to do on the mental health end for sure. Okay. Uh, so before we actually kind of jump in um, and get full and ready to discuss the topic at hand, we're all connected to this thing, um, obviously. And we like to start off by doing our margin of blackness, kind of where we get to like kind of divulge kind of where we are in this space um, in a sense like that to what's coming up for us, you know? Um, so I'm constantly thinking about um, like, for example, I, although I have the privilege of being employed, um, in this atmosphere right now, um, my mother, who's on the front line, does not have uh, like a salary job, you know. So I'm constantly worrying and thinking about her um, and what that looks like for her in this in this context. Because it's one thing to want to be on the front lines, but what what happens when you don't want to be on the front lines because you have other families to take care of, you know. Right. So um, my, my my mind is my, although I feel uh, physically, emotionally um, okay, I know she doesn't um, have that same privilege. Uh, to feel that way so keep praying yeah. thoughts and prayers and mark i think where i'm at right now it's close to you know kind of like aligned with you 
Uh, my mom's a nurse too. Well, my mom's a nurse and she's like, um, you know, going to work every day as well. So I'm always like really worried and concerned um, about her well-being. Um, and although I think she finds like some type of joy in doing this and being there for patients and helping community, um, she's still my mom and I feel worried about her. You know, she's older. She's, you know, pretty much like just in that vulnerable um, population age group. But then, I, you know, when I talk to her at work every day, you know, I, I hear like just kind of the, the trauma that's going on in the hospital. I hear, you know, she tells me stories. Um, so I'm also thinking about the families who are losing people, you know, the, the young people who are losing teachers oh. and thinking about that complex, but also thinking about like knowing that if you have COVID and you go to the hospital, you go to the hospital by yourself. Right. And if, if there's an unfortunate reality of you passing away, you pass away by yourself as well. So I think that's like, you know, that's a be a Debbie Downer, but you know, that's kind of what's on my heart and what I've been thinking about the last couple of days, just like, you know, just all the folks who, who have been kind of taken by storm by this virus and all the families who have lost somebody um, so abruptly, you know, by this virus. I think um, <laughs> I'm so, supposed to go because I um, I didn't quite like, you know, um, get into more of the personal aspect, which I think is important, you know, um, being a Black Latina out here, like I'm at the intersection of a lot of the communities that I work with. Um, and so there is this very um, interesting dynamic that's happening for me where um, on more of the professional end, I'm seeing how disproportionately impacted um, our communities are and the grief and loss that they're experiencing right now. And it's really heavy. So um, I'm experiencing myself as being really tired lately, needing a lot of breaks, um, having to do a lot of um, mental wellness practices at home, having to engage in communications with people that I know support me and love me because um, I'm feeling the weight of it all. Um, I'm doubling sessions every week um, because people need more than 45 minutes on the phone or on video with their therapist. I mean, it's, it's, it's a lot um, that our communities are carrying. And um, every week I hear of so many losses due to COVID-19 that people are experiencing firsthand. Um, or that people themselves uh, have been diagnosed with the virus. And um, it just really hits home, you know, um, w when that happens. And on the more personal end, like I had one parent who is the only working parent, the other one's retired, um, lose their job, you know. So then I have to make sure that I'm maintaining my income in order to, you know, um, ensure that I'm paying their rent and, um, make sure that I'm, you know, providing for my family. Um, I have, you know, a family member that's immunocompromised, so I'm really concerned about them and um, how this whole dynamic around, you know, needing to stay at home might impact them and, and um, the fact that she may have to stay for an even extended period of time locked away in her room. Um, more than the rest of us, uh, given that she's a, a very vulnerable person to this virus. So it's just a lot of stuff that you deal with in your personal life, you know, that you kind of have to find a way to compartmentalize and, and put to the side when then you have to step in and be a helping professional to the individuals that you work with on a daily basis in your professional atmosphere. So um, it's almost like you kind of have to split yourself a little bit in order to maintain sanity too. Mm. And it's a lot because on both ends, things are heavy, right? So, um, the, the positive, I guess, aspect of this is that I, I'm blessed and privileged to have been trained on the mental health end and being able to then manage what that's like for me, um, do it for myself, maintain my own, um, therapy appointments with my therapist. Um, I have so many friends that are therapists and, you know, that's a big privilege, right? Because we check in on each other and we know, you know, how to orient each other around the things that we're experiencing, the heightened level of, uh, stress, anxiety, you know, um, work straight, workplace stress and, and burdens and things like that. Um, so I'm feeling privileged and, and loved at this time. And I also feel like it is a lot, you know, that. I myself, and I think a lot of people 
like me are taking on at this point in time, especially if we are um, people of color um, that are at the at the front lines of mental health. Yeah, Madi, I kind of wanted to touch on one of the things you had brought up around the change in demographic of folks seeking therapy during this time. In an article that was recently published in the New York Times called When the Pandemic Leaves Us Alone, Anxious and Depressed by Andrew Solomon, who's a professor of medical clinical psychology at Columbia University Medical Center, he asserts that there are roughly four responses from people during this pandemic regarding their mental health in response to social isolation, right? So there are those who kind of take it all in stride and are able to get through this time already equipped with strategies to keep their mental health intact. Then there are what he refers to as the worried well, who would need a bit of kind of psychological first aid, right? They, they, they need a little bit of support. Then there are those who have not previously experienced any noticeable challenges with their mental health and are now being catapulted into them, right? So all of this is kind of new terrain. And then there are those who were already suffering from major depressive disorders and they've had their condition kind of exacerbated, right? So developing what clinicians would call a double depression where a persistent depressive disorder is compounded upon by an experience of unbearable pain, right? So i.e. this global pandemic. So in hearing this breakdown, have you found this to be true as you've seen this surge in folks seeking therapy? Yeah, I mean, I think that um, that encapsulates it pretty well, in my opinion. Um, so I'm really glad that you, um, you know, referenced to that article and then also, you know, brought it up uh, as a part of what we need to know in terms of how we can uh, categorize like the different ways that people are engaging with their mental health around this pandemic. What is happening um, on more personal kind of professional and is that I, I work with almost exclusively, if not exclusively, um, at least right now, black and brown folks. So the ways that I'm seeing black and brown folks engaging in terms of their mental health is more along the lines of the latter two categories that you express, Pat. So, you know, it's the individuals that are in need of therapy now, perhaps more than ever, um, or are coming into therapy for the first time, but in a really, really unwell state. So we have these um, crisis-related kind of protocols that we've instituted that are COVID-related um, and came about when the crisis started surfacing and we started seeing the, the pervasiveness of unwellness in the community. And we, we instituted a specific protocol that then segues a person into uh, therapy with us because most of my work has to do with really persistent and um, aggressive trauma or you know, with engaging people and being able to address things that are far beyond the day-to-day -day suffering that maybe you and I experience. And then the the other category of individuals that I have had more contact with are um, the people that require maintenance, that have already had some sort of um, experience of mental health um, challenges and then are seeing for themselves and that I myself am seeing and that my colleagues are seeing an exacerbation of their symptoms. So they're twice as unwell as they were uh, prior to all of this taking place. And so, um, yeah, it really coincides with what I'm seeing. And at the same time, you know, I more so kind of on the personal end, I am seeing more of the worried well and people that are engaging in their own self-care practices and that is enough. But I do believe that most of those people that I'm having those experiences with do have a level of privilege that the clients that I serve do not, especially economic privilege um, above all. And so that's the distinction that I'm seeing. And, you know, I, I, I don't want to take it as all truth because I think that, you know, I'm only one clinician, but I do believe that there are some correlates with what we would be seeing holistically in the mental health field. Yeah, I think I think that's that's a great point. I think earlier to that point, we were talking about the um, just the health disparities, right? Within, like we talk about New York City in particular within this context, but we're we're seeing it all across the um the nation and, and inner cities and communities that serve Black and Brown folks that 
black and brown folk are the ones who, um, in relation to COVID, are contracting the virus at higher rates and also dying from the virus at higher rates. And, you know, when you look at the media, the media talks about, like, you know, the narrative around COVID about a month ago is like, you know, if you're young and if you're healthy, don't worry about it. If you catch it, just stay home and you'll get through it. But I mean, it, even if that were to be true, right, which is not, people of color either have underlying conditions, right, or and or have have less access to, to health resources, right, or or just don't want to go to the doctor to get checked out because, just because of perception. And I think it's kind of similar around mental health. And Mario, correct me if I'm wrong, right? I think you know, so like, what is the context around, like, you're saying you're seeing a lot more folks, particularly in the black and brown community, seek mental health? Do you think like they're just being, they, you think they're being pushed by other agencies or, or by other kind of support services to seek mental health support? Because there's nothing else right now out there that, that folks can do. They can't go into a clinic's office. They can't go into the emergency room. Kind of like, you know, where do you think the community is now and how do you where do you see this context in the future around like you know even as we're moving towards and past covid what do you th- what do you think the impacts of this crisis is going to be on the mental health of our communities mm-hmm. yeah i mean i think there's a couple things that i can say in reference to that i mean uh, there was already a movement in place that was pro mental health practices mm-hmm. right um the, the ones that that aren't necessarily the the ones that we have ascribed to historically, which are more of the indigenous practices, more of the westernized version like therapy. And people were leaning into the idea of therapy more. We were working on reducing stigma and ensuring that people um, are staying in therapy that are black indigenous people of color and that have a history of not being able to connect well with uh, the therapy environment because it offered a, a similarly oppressive state as other uh, systems, right? And so it's really important that we take note of the fact that pre-COVID-19, we did have a movement in the direction of helping people to ascribe more to the idea of therapy. However, that also is economically bound, right? Because there's economic barriers and legitimized barriers that operate against those individuals within BIPOC communities, Black, Indigenous, people of color is BIPOC. We understood that when we're talking about, you know, going to therapy and telling people, hey, go to therapy, you know, we're talking to people that are insured, uh, that have the capacity, the resources, and the the means and access to being able to go to therapy, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's something that we need to consider that we were talking to a subset of our population when we were doing that. It's important to be able to transition into the COVID-19 epidemic in a way that opens up the conversation to everybody. Um, we can't leave behind a subset of our community. We have to make sure that we're engaging everybody as much as possible, which is why, you know, I really take to social media because even people that are in dire, you know, desperate financial need, more often than not still have a cell phone that's a smartphone that has access to apps like Instagram or Facebook or other apps where clinicians are promoting wellness practices, right? So there's a larger reach and and people can take whatever it is that they can and whatever it is that they can use and you and utilize that for themselves to maintain their own wellness and the wellness of, you know, their extended communities, families, you know, friends, people in their larger community. And so um, it has a, a real genuine purpose that is, you know, important for us to understand. But the thing is that this isn't something that um, should be striking us as like surprising at all. Um, we should have seen this coming from the moment that we understood that we had the first COVID crisis in the U.S. And um, this is just the nature of the beast that individuals that are BIPOCs are disproportionately affected by anything that is health related or mental health related in our nation and beyond. And so we're just seeing um, these conversations surface, I think this week, if I'm not mistaken, where we're like, oh, wait, let's look at the numbers. Let's, you know, have a, a aggregate data by race and economic status. And then we're seeing that there is a real disparity and it doesn't strike us as anything that's shocking, surprising or odd to the ones that 
you know, have already been on the front lines of trying to reduce those health disparities by way of working within our communities. But it's really unfortunate that it is the case because yet again, we have a situation where, you know, this can, in a, in a more extreme fashion, can be seen as a method of racial cleansing. If we're allowing for people um, that are um, BIPOCs to be disproportionately affected by something that can very well kill them, which is the case in a, at least a good subset of these cases until we find a cure or, or, or a vaccine, then we're, we're seeing a, a disproportionate amount of our communities, you know, absolving themselves to death or to, to severe illness. And um, to already have a lot of comorbidity that is that coincides with, you know, mental health, unwellness or chronic physical illness, which is highly prominent in our communities based on like what you said, Ed, like lack of resources, really uh, poor health practices that are imposed upon our communities and a lack of trust in the institution of health, then what we're going to see is a lot more of that in, you know, the coming year. And I think that it is our duty as clinicians or anybody that is in contact uh, with people in our community to ensure that we spread the word about this and also do something about it. So action definitely needs to be a part of um, what we need to do right now. This is a long-winded answer. Yeah, that was, that was that great. Some of those so, points you said. I, I want to say, um, Maria, like, so, you know, and, and to me, you are um, a frontliner because you're a frontliner on um, the mental health field, you know, and, we, and definitely appreciate that. And as a, as a, as a person who's in front of kids, um, as a frontliner as well, you know, one of your quotes on your Instagram says, you don't have to thrive in a crisis, you have to survive it. I'll say it again, you don't have to uh, thrive in a crisis, you have to survive it. And yeah. as an educator, how do you, I, I, am, I, I recognize my role is shifting. Instead of just giving content and, and expecting kids to complete work, it's shifting more of holding space for them, you know? And I'm wondering, um, I, I'm wondering and thinking about, you know, what role do you feel that educators should probably play? And also understanding that they're not actually professionals in the mental health, but what role do you see or think they could play on as frontliners on education? Yeah, I mean, I think there's so many things that educators can do that are that can be helpful to students right now and even as an extension of students to students' families. I mean, I think that educators can really come in and um, step it up, right? Like I, I've seen this huge movement and the three of you um, have actually been a, a big influence in helping me to understand the ways that uh, educators have been really eager to incorporate mental health and mental wellness in, in the education practice. And this is a huge opportunity that educators have to be able to take the time that they have now and understand how to incorporate mental health and mental wellness practices within their educational capacities. Um, I don't want to, you know, promote the processing of trauma and things that, you know, require professional help because it can it can get very tricky you can actually you know by way of doing things incorrectly catapult someone into a pretty aggressive state of anxiety depression suicidality things that we don't want to do for these kids right like we want to help them stay well and help them to have health promoting practices and behaviors in their day-to-day -day life um but that is the thing is that you know like educators can now step in and and actually instill some of those practices into their day-to-day -day interactions with students, right? We've been talking about mindfulness for a very long time. And at this point in time, I think there's a, a good subset of educators that probably even practice mindfulness themselves. So how is it that you can carve out a couple of minutes in the beginning of your day or the beginning of your session uh, with your students to actually engage in mindfulness practices and it doesn't have to be meditation per se it can just be like a host of different things that you can do to help ground the kids you know because they're coming probably from having heard the news you know engaging with um family members that are talking about COVID-19 
or talking to friends about it, you know? And so like they're coming into the classroom environment from having had these conversations, being overly activated, being anxious, and then um, they're expected to transition into the classroom space with a healthy and clear mind and ready for learning, right? And that is an unfair expectation that we can have on any kid that is in the very process of collective trauma that we're all experiencing. So instead, what educators can do is transition um, um, into the mindfulness exercise in their virtual classrooms in order to provide the students a break from their existing reality outside of the cl classroom space into the classroom space. And they can actually like, you know, feel more attuned to what's happening within. Also, a lot of, you know, the actual activities and and homeworks that students are engaging in can be tailored to um, something that's more wellness-based and, and can incorporate um, mental health practices, right? Um, why not, right? Why not give an assignment that actually motivates a student to start engaging in the practice of mental health by, you know, telling them that they have to write about a mindfulness exercise that they engaged in throughout the week outside of the classroom space and share that with fellow students and then create an environment where you're having this prominent conversation around wellness. So there is a space that we can carve out, especially right now for students to be able to um, have um, health promoting practices that start in the classroom, especially if those students don't have access to therapeutic practices or other health and indigenous healing practices, but they have access to school, right? Mm -hmm. And so the schools um, and teachers and even counselors that operate in the schools alike can start incorporating some of these practices in order to support overwhelmed students that are probably already coming in with their own respective traumas, with their own respective psychosocial stressors and, and things that they have to deal with in the home. And then on top of that, a very prominent health crisis. If, if I could just ask right real quick, and then um, I like how you, I really appreciate how you gave some like kind of practical tools um, for educators to implement in their virtual classrooms. I, 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 I'm curious what you would think about, um, I, I, I believe my argument is almost like, Empathy is what teachers need to kind of kind of show kids first, right? And it, and it requires us as educators, as people to be vulnerable first so kids can um, express that empathy as well too. Because I can do all the assignments you're asking me to do, right? But what, what, what means is, 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 is if I don't myself actually empathize as well. So what I've been doing on virtual sessions, I kind of like... I do things with my kids I wouldn't normally do to show that like, hey, I'm feeling this way. Here's what I'm kind of going through. Here's what I'm doing, you know? And I think it gives them a space to kind of be like, you know what, I might try that as well too. Because what, what happens is in this um, society right now, kids have unfettered access to internet and Facebook and Instagram and TikTok. And those things are, they go unmitigated and unchecked and kids aren't doing the lateral reading or to cross check resources. I'm trying to establish a space where, like, the pedagogy is about healing and empathy, you know? I'm focusing more so, my frontlining, <laughs> actually, on the empathizing approach and tailoring assignments to kind of check in with kids to see how are they doing. That's so beautifully stated, and I'm so glad that you mentioned that. You know, like, if um, you're not able to model compassion and um, self-empathy and other empathy um, to students like it's gonna there's gonna be a disconnect right between what you're assigning them to do um, for the sake of your wellness practice for the sake of their wellness practice and and you know what you're doing yourself like if they're seeing that you're out of sorts or you're kind of like not yourself and they're picking up on that Kids are so much more intuitive than adults. I fairly believe that. Um, uh, and you're you're not, you know, um, being authentically expressive to them about the fact that, you know, we're all in this together and I myself am being impacted. Um, then, you know, you're kind of leaving out a really big piece of the puzzle that, you know, um, emphasizes connection between human to human, regardless of the age difference. And so I'm really glad that you're bringing that into the mix because it's really important um, to be able to, um, express the fact that 
you yourself are vulnerable and experiencing vulnerabilities as a result of what's happening and that it's impacting you as well. I think that this it also extends, you know, to colleagues. Like, how can you express compassion um, to your colleagues, understanding that, you know, you're all going through a very similar process of feeling overextended and, and probably feeling deep concern for your students, especially people that, you know, are educators and have a legitimized concern and connection uh, to their students and, and want to see them well before COVID-19 and, and even during and after it. Uh, so I, I really believe that just as much as we would like for students to continue to access social connections through their phone or you know, video chat, Zoom, however they may be engaging, even through video games, like however they may, may be engaging um, with other people to garner support and healing and help through the, through the, throughout this time. Um, the same goes for educators. Like educators should be hopping on Zoom and having a teacher support group. Like you don't need a moderator or therapist to do that. You can just have each other and listen to each other and provide each other with some sort of tips and tools on what you can do to maintain your mental wellness during this time. And that in and of itself is modeling. So um, all of it is is great ideas and, and super welcome, you know, according to what you're already doing, Mark. Mark, I think you brought up a good a good point around the empathy piece um, for educators. And as somebody who works with educators like from a different level, I think you know you're a different type of educator, Mark, and that's why that's why I rock with you, right? I think you are somebody who might who leads with the heart and who leads with empathy. Um, but in my practice, and especially in working with um, with teachers around this and in, in this crisis, um, there I'm noticing and I'm coming across a lot more teachers who are. I mean, for me, teaching and pedagogy. You, it leads with the heart, right? And I, I'm, I'm that type of educator who content is obviously important to me, but content never comes first. But a lot of most educators, I would say that I that I've come across in my experience, especially those who work in in in, in inner city, like in in, our, in New York, they're just about content, 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 mm. right? And I think recognizing that in this time, you, you number one, nobody cares about nobody cares about content right now, you know, um, when there's so much going on. Um, in the world, and I'm not saying that students should not be learning, but like I, I agree with what you're saying, Mark. Like we have to find, we have to create a context and a space for young people to just be vulnerable and and, and just share how they're feeling. And then what I when, when I heard you got when I heard you saying that, Mark, the first thing I heard a teacher say to me was like, "I'm not a I'm not a licensed mental health practitioner," mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. That's always the pushback or the argument, right? Because you know a lot of teachers find ways to not do things. And I, and I will argue that, you know, I would agree with that, right? And I, but I also push, but I would push back for educators and saying that you don't have to be a mental health practitioner to check on, to check in on the well-being of your students. Exactly. Right. And I think as an educator, our, our jobs and our, our roles and our responsibilities are, are to, are to number one, just ensure that the well-being of our students are, are is maintained. Right. And it, that may not come with engaging in content first. Right. So what does that look like with, with leading with, em- with empathy, with leading with vulnerability? And, and maybe as, as an educator, maybe like you like you got like both of you said, like practicing those 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 strategies and skill sets first and modeling it for your students. But I think it takes a lot of educators to kind of just shift their mindsets around what teaching and learning like from the jump. Before they even get there, you know, what I mean, yeah, it's a it's definitely um. I realize an unlearning, right? And I think for, for education and, and teaching for a lot of teachers is a, is a way to to exhibit power and control in some ways. And I think that yeah. I understand that they will want to teach content, content, content. That's what they've been doing. And I think when everything in the world is crumbling, you cling on to probably something that you have yeah. control over, which is the pedagogy, you know? Um, but what we're realizing is that kids aren't doing the work. A lot of kids haven't checked into online learning you know, and perhaps that's that. And a lot of kids actually have been, you know. Um, so, yeah, I think I like what you said, like we have to reimagine what education looks like um, during COVID. I think what it does is not not only does it, not only does it underscore highlight the inequities um, and disparities in education or in health, but also like, man, like it kind of causes you to reexamine, like, what am I actually teaching when the state just threw out the regents and testing out the window? What happens when the first time in 25 years, 10 years, five years, I had the opportunity to teach what I want? Right. You know? And if someone's saying, a principal's like, yo, don't worry about 
don't worry about like the content. Give kids a chance. Just just create what you want. And it's one assignment a week. She's asking of us one assignment a week. I'm like, this is better than vacation, you know. Um, but it's it's, it's it's a jarring change because I've been I've been doing things in a certain fashion. I have to reimagine what it looks like. Um, yeah. And I think that teach, uh, educators are struggling with that and just trying to create some kind of semblance of um, just control, you know? Yeah, a, a paid vacation at that. Mm-hmm. Right. right. Facts. Facts. Yeah. Yes. And like, I, I always want to highlight, like, educators have it kind of, like, lovely right now in the sense that, like, yo, six, over six million people across the nation filed for unemployment over the last two, three weeks. Mm-hmm. Right? But educators, um, as of right now, at least in New York City, have their jobs, you know, they're, they're getting their salaries. They still have their benefits. So I, I you know, and, and a, a piece of me also looks at it like, yo, ed, yo we're, we are privileged. Yeah. We're going through a, a, a pandemic and, a, and a, a global crisis, but for educators in particular, there's one less thing you have to worry about that a lot of other people have to, and that's financial stability. And that's, that, that's something that can, that, that can drive folks crazy. Yeah. Right. So for me, I'm like, yo, like I, I get educators, right. I get, you know, there are a lot of educators who have kids at home and like, I, I know it's, it's a different time and I, I definitely want to um, empathize with that. But I also want to like, you know, this is the time to kind of like, yo, go to extra mile if you can, if you have, if you have the capacity, you know, if you're not dealing with something that that's, that's traumatic right now in this moment, like go to extra mile for your kids, How, try to connect with those kids. Cause most, most students are not connecting online mm. and, and are not in, engaging in remote learning. I think that's like, that's a challenge. Schools are closed the rest of the school year. Right. So we, if, if they're not engaging now, what's the likelihood of them? Um, let me know. Let me just log on May 2nd. See what's going on. <laughs> you know, so um, uh, Pat, I have a question for you because um, you kind of focused on kind of on like what the educators are going through. You know, you work you work you work for uh, and with the Department of Education. Um, what has been the shift of the lens in trying to reach and work with teachers? Uh, what does yeah. that look like? I think I think to both of your points, like first things first is the acknowledgement that um, we're going through a, a global pandemic and that typical structures and understandings of education. What this really is, is a mirror um, that's that's forcing us to look at ourselves and look at how many of our in-person meetings could have been an email or a phone call. It's almost like our, our, our psychological understanding of like what is education's purpose, what you know, because there's the. Obviously, the deliverance of content is important. Um, you know, knowledge acquisition is important. But where does uh, ritual play a part in the way that we're educating students and, and the impact that education has? Where does representation play a part? Where do all of these like kind of intangible things play a part? And I find that right now, what we're focusing on heavily, you know, how are we building community? You know, for a lot of students, home school was the escape from home. So what does it mean now that a student is spending 24 hours a day within their home um, that could be an oppressive space for them? And then we're asking them to tune in um, to this Zoom call in a classroom from a teacher who never created systems and structures in place to acknowledge the reality of that student in the first place. Like, I think that one of the biggest things that we're seeing is just like when you remove all of the structure that, you know, previously we would, you know, kind of critique the structures that are put in place as teachers, the constraining elements of them. Um, But now that those things are taken away, it's almost that question of, were you creating system uh, structures and norms within your classroom that would want, that would warrant students to join now? You know, like, because if you're playing that game of catch up, where you know, you're trying to implement things in your classroom that you haven't been doing for the whole school year and you're expecting students to kind of just, you know, adhere to this new structure because of the sake that you're a teacher, right? Like that's where you lose kids. That's where you find teachers who are saying that students aren't tuning into Zoom calls. It's because you haven't like supported them in that structure beforehand. And and also to add to that point though, right? I think it's also like the question behind why kids aren't hopping on Zoom calls during assignments is also because not only kids are checked out, it's because people are dying. Yeah. I have right. kids that lost family members. Kids are sick. Kids don't have internet. Kids don't have... The DOE just got some iPads. My, my kid, one of my students, just got an iPad, like, this week, or last week or whatever, right? So I think, like, kids aren't checking in because if we are in a pandemic. Like, priority mm-hmm. should not be, like, completing work. The, the, the priority should be, like, yo, how do we helping support like just just holding i i, I keep saying holding space because I, I can't say holding to empathizing because like i said um i when i when i talk to my kids about their problems i fear because like 
I have nothing to tell them. Like I rely on faith. I can't be preaching Jesus, obviously. You know what I'm saying? But um, it's kind of like yeah, I'm, I'm a familiar face thing. I feel you and I understand. You know, and I think yeah. educators have to remember that that especially for our black and brown babies, like they are taking care of sick family members. They are sick and don't have access. Like you know, certain places don't have free Wi-Fi. You right. know unreasonable almost oppressive to expect or to give a kid a zero or missing grade because they haven't shown up have have we called have we checked in can every 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 educator in their school say hey we had a a phone conversation a text message an email something with every kid in the school therefore we can hold them accountable for something you know one grade a week yeah or or understand that context right and i think um man like you say it's, it's, it's about it's about holding space man it's this it, it, it kind of just reminds you of, of all the disparities that that current that existed prior to COVID, right? And it just kind of it's exacerbating that in, in all facets, right? Health disparities, disp- pedagogical disparities, like Pat, like you say, like you know, if your pedagog, like if pedagogy wasn't popping prior, it's not. Don't expect to be popping now. If students didn't have a connection with the teacher prior, don't expect them to to build a, a connection over on over remote learning, mm-hmm. right? And it, it, it's kind of like one of those things where it's like, yo, we. Schools try to put all these systems and structures that are that are inherently oppressive to young people, but then now we're in a we're in a space and a context where we're educators need young people to come to them, and meet them, on, on and, and on this online virtual space and like now educators I mean students have the power students have more power now because <laughs> it's like yo I ain't coming I ain't coming to your oppressive class online from my from my home <laughs> like why would I want to do that right. Where? I, I think like you know it's important to recognize that and and kind of to shift um Marielle, when I ask like you know there are a lot of young people and parents there are a lot of parents who are at home who are at home struggling with the remote learning um I see parents talking about yo my kids going to school on Monday I don't care who's there right I think number one parents are recognizing how 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 challenging and difficult it is to be an educator right. but also like you know how can they get through this process you know of like you know remote learning with dealing with their own professional careers. And also trying to like provide some type of education opportunities for their for their young ones, um, in the home. It, it could be crazy. I'm hearing that um, uh, child abuse statistics like the that's going up. Yeah. Domestic abuse is also going up. Like when people are just confined to a space, um, there are obviously gonna be a lot more challenges. So you know what 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 resources or support or strategies do you have for that? I mean, there's um you know th- I think it goes back to somewhat of a replication of the the conversation that we had about, you know, teachers and students, right? Um, the fact that it also has to start with having self-compassion for the parent, right? Like the parent needs to elicit self-compassion. Um, if there is more than one parent, several caregivers, grandparents in the home, there needs to be a collectivized, like compassionate network amongst these individuals for the fact that they have to now assume a lot um, as human beings that are already probably pretty taxed in um, their own workspaces or taxed in, in the home um, for having to do other things and assuming other responsibilities. And on top of that, having to either homeschool or attend to the general structure um, of the classroom environment that now has been imposed upon their kids. And we're only considering, you know, even in saying that statement, I'm only considering you know, the people that have the actual access to have a, a structured mm-hmm. classroom environment, right? Um, the kids that actually have access to Wi-Fi or have access to a Chromebook or an iPad. Um, and that, you know, it, we need to take into account the fact that there are other kids that aren't having access to those things and are probably pretty stressed about, you know, what their, um, their learning um, process is going to look like for the rest of this year. So there's a lot that the kids need to hold on to, the parents need to hold on to on top um, for the sake of their kids. And so um, it's a lot that we're asking parents. And so just making sure that we relate to parents that they need to be attuned to their own self-compassion is you know, just kind of where I want to start with that conversation. But for the parents that do have some capacity of being able to impose some sort of structure, whether or not it is related to the school environment or if it's something like, you know, 30 minutes of reading time um, with a book that they already have in the home or 
um, you know, 30 minutes of reading time on the smartphone where there's like, you know, maybe something that's available that can be of educational benefit. I know that there's a number of different um, teachers that I have on my IG that are holding specific sessions for students, just whoever wants to join, right? I know an economics teacher who um, is having uh, sessions, I think, every single day for an hour, and everybody's welcome, obviously, because it's IG, right? Um, so maybe just learning about those things as a parent, learning about the resources that are out there and being able to just, you know, sit your kid down or sit with your kid if you have that capacity, the capacity to do that and, you know, sitting through a lesson with them um, is something that, you know, parents can do. Also, you know, it's it's about the modeling piece as well. I mean, like I said, it extends into the parent-child relationship. So let's not lose sight of that as well. Like we talked about it already with the teacher, so we don't need to reemphasize it. Just making sure that we're attending to that. And um, because parents play a different role in a child's life and have the capacity to impose love and affirmation in a different way than teachers can, um, you know, think, thinking about kicking that up a notch, um, affirming them and um, helping them to understand that even though we don't know 100% like where we're headed, um, that we can still maintain hope that things are going to be fairly okay, right? Um, be realistic while also, you know, trying to instill hope in, in kids. In, the installation of hope is one of the most um, important aspects of mental health. It's one of the things that we learn at the very outset of our training because it, it has, it, we may undervalue it in society, but hope has such, um, uh, like, very pronounced effects on a person's mental health and, and well-being so just giving a person hope can actually help them to stay afloat so being able to do that yeah. for a child um, is incredibly important uh, to the best of your capacity as a parent um, and you know I mean like I know that it's likely hard for parents to stick to a structure and a schedule but it is important to help kids maintain some sense of normalcy. So to whatever extent a parent can do that, I would welcome that into the home, right? Um, and that is something that I think very much pertains to things that are even the basic needs that a child has. Like, are they eating at a structured time, right? Mm -hmm. Are they going to sleep during the times that typically they would probably go to sleep um, during their regular school days the other day I spoke to my nephew and he was up till four o'clock in the morning and I was like what is that what is happening and he's only 12 right and so I understand you know like there's more access to video games now he can play like to his heart's content and so he falls asleep right but you know to what extent is that also modifying his his hormones his his circadian rhythms the things that um internally and physiologically work to keep him well and to keep him balanced. Um, and that's an important facet of overall wellness that parents need to keep in mind. Like keep your kids at, you know, a schedule that makes sense, right, for um, their wellness, especially if they're preteen and teens where we already know like hormones are flying out the wazoo. It's important for us to make sure that we're you know, keeping them as well as possible so that they're not, you know, vacillating in their mood states and um, becoming irritable and unwell and not able to focus the next day at school because they've been up till four o'clock in the morning, right? So um, these are some of the things that can be imposed in the home environment that are um, actually, hopefully can be helpful, you know, but we also understand are helpful from a mental health and physiological perspective. And spending time with your kids, like, but we now have like an opportunity to do that. Like even if you're actually um, working from home, if you have an opportunity to take lunch, you actually can take lunch with your kid. If you can take a 30 minute break from your workday, you can actually like use that time to spend time with your kid, check in on them. How's your day going? It's one o'clock in the afternoon. Like what have you been up to? You know, like, is there anything that you'd like to have for dinner? Like let's go around, you know, like, and, and throw out ideas on what you might like your day to look like um, and really 
expanding that conversation that probably you wouldn't be able to have um, with your kid on any other regular day because you spend your lunch time with colleagues or by yourself, right? So there's a lot of opportunity for there to be like uh, mood enhancing and wellness promoting practices that can be imposed in the day um, by a parent. And a part of that starts with the parent being well themselves, but then a part of that also coincides with, you know, spending time with their kids and keeping their kids in somewhat of a structure that makes sense for their bodies and their minds. Yeah, man. Can I just say how much I appreciate you? (laughs) You know, I want to give you your roses while you're still here, specifically because therapy means something different for everyone. Oftentimes, you in your line of work experience the journey of folks investigating the darkest parts of their psyche, and you do so absent of judgment, you know, which allows for us to then better see things as they are, a true reflection, as opposed to seeing them through the murky waters of our own insecurities, doubt, guilt, etc. We've said on the podcast before that the blessing and the curse and being a critical mind in this social work is that the concepts that we're investigating, right, self-care, gun control, rape culture, we discuss them with confidence that the conversation will always be relevant because history repeats itself. In that light, you've always promoted self-care. You could, you could see it on your Instagram page. You've been talking about this, but now through this tragedy is when folks are knocking down your door. It feels very reactive as opposed to proactive. So with mental health being this kind of hot topic and a policy window even, after all this is over, what do you hope we all as a collective society will learn from this global crisis around the importance of our individual and collective mental health? Well, I mean, I I definitely have a hope that um, there's going to be more value placed on mental health. And I mean that not only from the perspectives of the people that would be seeking out mental health services, but also from the institutions um, that basically um, house mental health services, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Institutions of health, for the most part, uh, tend to pay mental health practitioners less than um, other medical professionals. there is a disparity in that regard. So we deal with a lot of, um, you know, day-to-day holding on to a lot of stress and trauma for a number of individuals on a day-to-day basis. And it's a lot of work, a lot of heavy work. Um, and there's a lot of underfunding that coincides with our work, right? And so we carry a lot of heaviness with us with a lower pay grade. Um, so I hope that it, emphasizes for people that um, are at the front lines of um, promoting adequate reimbursement for us for insurance companies for managed care which is you know a a big source of uh, stress for a lot of clinicians because we don't get paid out what the services are worth we usually get paid out anywhere from like 10 percent to maybe 70 percent of our fee um that I'm, I'm hoping that this can provide a shift, uh, a real law-based shift for people to actually acknowledge the importance of the work that we do and to compensate um, us accordingly. Because I think that that can also help factor into, and this, the same goes for educators, right? I think that there's a correlate there where educators are really um you know, like for the most part, I know that there's like differences depending on like where you're situated um, in terms of your, your teaching practice, but that there is for the most part, um, this very low pay grade that we tend to see nationally for educators, like the same goes for mental health practitioners. And so I'm hoping that that can be like one of the things that can surface from this, that, um, because the thing is that that also is a factor in burnout. When you feel like, you know, you're working super hard and really long hours to try and make up the salary that you don't have, um, then, you know, you feel the burnout, you, you're less present for people. Like, there's a lot of things that happen as a result of that. Um, on the student slash client end, I'm really hoping that, um, you know, people can see the benefit of 
having some sort of a mental health connection or structure. The connection can come from any place, right? It can come from social media or articles, um, wherever you can get your mental health related content or an actual practitioner. Um, and I'm hoping that people can, can actually see the value and that that can help reduce stigma for people because they saw that there was so much value in what they were able to attain in a time of crisis um, that they can see it being something that um, they can benefit from moving forward in their lives when the pandemic has subsided. Um, so on both ends, right, from the systemic perspective where, you know, we need people to, to really um, open access to mental health care, like um, give a proper compensation, like all of those things. I'm hoping that that is something that we can see more of, that more jobs are open for mental health clinicians so that we can provide more access to care, um, that more individuals of color, understanding that COVID-19 is disproportionately affecting individuals of color, that more individuals of color would be awarded jobs um, to be able to service our communities. Um, and then, you know, on the client end, I'm really hoping the reduction of stigma and um, the leaning in the direction of, of wanting to engage in mental health services will be something that will be seen more of. I, I, you know, I think we, 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 we've gone to a bunch of different places so far, and I think we're, we're nearing the end of our episode. And I, I want to I leave. I think it's important for us to kind of leave on a high note, right? So we're, we're transitioning back into our segments, right? And what's up, Matt? What's up, Mark? I was saying, like, it's important to leave on the installation of hope idea that um, Marielle introduced us to, you know? And Hi. we can use that idea um, to, to transition into our... Uh, footnotes where we kind of say our taking away from a conversation. Maybe we can focus on because the con the context of this is so is so real. But how I wonder if we can focus our footnotes on the installation of hope. Yeah. So considering that, like for all of us, right? Like we know COVID is a a, a national global pandemic where many folks are are losing lives. It's exacerbating health disparities and all sorts of disparities across the board. Um, particularly for marginalized groups, after we get through this crisis, if we were to reimagine the world or any piece of the world, right, what would that look like for you, for any of us, right? Like to reimagine the world after COVID. I'm going to ask if Maria can model what that looks like, like the, the, the installation of hope. Can you model that for us so we can practice that? What does that yeah, absolutely. Like and I just, I just want to say how much I love the question. So I just want to put that out there. Um, I, you know, I think that this, is an opportunity for us to reflect upon how resilient our people are and the fact that, you know, um, I know that our people above anyone else will actually come out of this um, thriving and surviving as we have with all of the traumas that we have experienced in this world. And and so I'm, I'm really actually hopeful to the idea of, um, partaking in in a very large way in in that new uh, survival and in that new thriving atmosphere that our people will be a part of um, and that our people will be the ones to model for the rest of the world what that looks like and I am just like um, really looking forward to seeing what we make of this we're so creative we're so resilient um, mm -hmm. we make lemonade out of lemons in life just in general and i have a feeling that we're going to do this with the covid19 crisis as well so i say anybody else be on the lookout for what we're doing don't appropriate but definitely be on the lookout for what we're doing because i have a feeling that we're going to come out of this like in a really strong way yeah um i'll, I'll jump in next uh first thing we got to pay our mental health practitioners like you know, run running their checks right mario <laughs> word <laughs> right. Um, but what I would love to see is, you know, you know, I, I agree with everything you said, Mario, but I'm so tired of like of of marginalized groups having to like always like bounce back. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. Like, what does it look like for having like this support from the jump? Like what is health? What is access to health care look like for everybody? Yeah. Right. Um, what is access to Internet to like just resource to engage in, a, in an effective education look like for everybody? 
right? What is dope pedagogy and dope relationship building and, and, and systems and structures that reflect the lives and, and, and realities of our young people look like every day? And I'm, I'm hoping that, that, COVID, that this, this, this pandemic and this crisis will encourage us all in, in these different domains and different fields to really think critically about like how we can support our most marginalized groups and, and, and make them feel more included and, and, and be more inclusive. You know, I don't think the world is built for that, but I think this, this can be an opportunity for us to kind of shift and pivot towards that. Yes. I'll, I'll speak to um, when when Octavia Butler wrote like *Parable of the Sower*. It was like kind of a one of the like the kind of the first dystopian novels, science fictions, you know, kind of written by black women. And I heard someone say that books like that are necessary because we get to you get to reimagine the world that's that you're not yet in, you know. And I think that like although I don't know what I want it to look like, I think educators are in this space of trying to create, or they're, they're going to be on the front lines of this new world post-corona. You know, we get to kind of, because this, this is unprecedented, and we get to, I'm, and I'm using the word we get to, as in that we have to, or it's a burden, like we get to figure these things out. What does it look like to teach after this? And I can, I can say when I have kids or 10 years later, like my activism was my podcast. My activism was like, calling this person or checking on this person or creating something um, in the midst of this um, this crisis. Yeah. One of the, like, I love the element of hope, you know, that we've kind of infused into this conversation. In terms of, you know, after this time period, I'm thinking about the allusion to, like, knowledge and wisdom as a body of water, right? And, like, one of the purposes of meditation is to kind of let the murky water settle and let the surface of the water um, remain still so that you can have a true reflection of the world that we're living in, right? And so in this, you know, sometimes I feel like we move throughout the world, you know, when there isn't a pandemic, we're moving through the world in our own mucky water, which is filled with like attachments to um, visions of ourselves or um, these things that just aren't actually real in the present. Um, and so I hope that after a time like this, one of the things that we can move forward with as a society is working on self first, like that self work and understanding what it means to have your body of water be still on the surface, um, to properly like guide our, our movements going forward. Right. Um, cause sometimes when we navigate with our own murky water, it feels kind of like, um, like Cuba Gooding Jr. in Boys in the Hood when he's swinging at air or like trying to create light from grasping at darkness, right? Like it just seems misguided when there's been these fundamental truths that that remain true um, throughout time, throughout existence. Um, and I just hope that we can, as a society, get, get back to those fundamental understandings of ourselves and what it means to be in community and what history has taught us about like the ways that we've moved and who we've oppressed. Um, because again, like to Ed's point, I'm tired of being that, that population that always is, is forced to persevere. And we do it with such elegance and such brilliance. Um, but imagine a world where we're not as reactive. Um, we can be proactive in supporting ourselves, supporting our communities and uh, you know, believing in being the change. Big facts. Uh, Mari, I wanna, I wanna, we wanna thank you for um, uh, joining us and breaking up the patriarchy <laughs> on our podcast at times by having um, not only a friend but a sister to join us. Um, before we kind of close, can you? Where can we find you? If, if you want to learn more about who you, your work, can you drop your handles and things like that real quick for us, please? Yes, definitely. So um, I am most prominent on IG. Um, so my Instagram handle is at doctor dot Marielle Bouquet. That's Dr. As in D R period. Um so here I'm I'm pretty active every single day. That's why you laugh. <laughs> um and then um I am still recruiting folks for my private practice, although um with the COVID nineteen crisis um things will look a little bit more unconventional right now in terms of private practice. Um but uh, there is an inquiry form that you can find on my IG stories um, if you are interested in working with me one-on-one. -on -one. 
um, and I can give you a consultation, free consultation, and then also um, just to talk about how we can get started on this work. Wow, thank you so much, Madi. Um, it's always a pleasure to have you on. You know, as we close out, we also just want to let y'all know how we can always stay in community um, and 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 follow. You know, as we continue to just put out more content, um, you can follow us on Instagram at Three Educated Brothers. Um, that's the number three, and then Brothers with an A S for the culture. You heard, and I believe it's the same on Twitter. Uh, on Twitter, do we have a Twitter? <laughs> nah, we don't. We don't got a Twitter, bro. <laughs> uh, all right. So it's only Instagram. <laughs> all right. So scratch that. Don't follow us on Twitter. But what you can do is email us at info at threeeducatedbrothers.com. We like to incorporate listener questions and comments to our recordings and our content. So please do not hesitate to reach out. We are here to build, y'all. Here's to our health. And, you know, we'll catch y'all soon. Yeah. Peace.